we're, we're we're jumping we're jumping into the podcast without a without a plan. This is a good plan. We'll we'll talk about this. <laughs> I just you gotta let me. It just it's so much work to like rearrange all the shit you say <laughs> and put it in some kind of coherent order. So also, just, I gotta stop laughing so much. The laughing is what's. I think the laughing is good. The laughing is is helping. You're you're either laughing or you're uh, you know using words nobody understands. So it's better to do the laughing. I guess that's fine. All right, so let's let's start. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government at William & Mary. And joining me today, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Jeffrey. How are you? I'm doing well. Marcus, we're both teaching classes this semester. I'm teaching international security. You're teaching uh, introduction to international politics. And we have, I think it's fair to say, slightly different areas of emphasis in these classes, although there's some substantive overlap. One of the things that I spend a lot of time talking about in my class is how we test the theories that we are examining in class. Um, So how would we know, for every theory we learn about in my class, we ask, how would we know that this is true? How do we know if this is something that is the way the world actually works? And I know in, in your class, there's a little bit of less of an emphasis on empirical testing of theory. And I thought maybe this would be something we could talk a little bit about. Your approach to international to studying international relations really focuses on the theoretical side of it, coming up with those theories. Um, whereas I, I think, you know, my work is, is more in the vein of empirical testing of theory. How do you think about the distinction between coming up with a theory and testing the theory? Are these complementary pursuits? Why do you kind of gravitate toward one over the other? Okay, so no, I think this is actually a really interesting um, question. And I should say just at the outset for the, the listeners, I mean, I think you know, Professor Kaplow and I um, kind of exist on this spectrum um, where, you know, on one end you have people that do really solely sort of theoretical work. They talk about, you know, international relations from a very theoretical perspective. Um, and some of the questions they might ask are, like, what is the nature of the international system? What is the nature of states? Why, what explains, you know, state behaviors and so on? But it's really just, you know, sort of like theoretical in the sense of asking typically big questions um, about the nature of international politics. And as you slide down the, the, the spectrum, you get sort of folks who are, are also interested in what we would talk about as sort of empirical testing, or sometimes we talk about as methodology, basically the, the question of, if you have these big theories, you have these sort of big under, conceptual understandings of how the international system works, how do we know, as you put it, whether one is true or not, or one has more support than, than the other, and all that kind of thing? And then I think even further down the spectrum, you have folks who are, who are almost solely interested in, in the testing part, the sort of empirical part. Uh, they look out in the world and they see patterns, they see uh, data, they see things that can be dots that can be connected correlations that can be made, maybe, you know, causation can be identified. And uh, their theory might inform at some level what they're doing, but they're really sort of interested in, in, uh, I think, describing uh, the patterns of international politics and really getting a fine-grained understanding of of what we talk about sort of causal inference, like what is causing what in the international system. Um, And so I think we're both, you know, somewhere on that spectrum, but I would totally agree. I'm I'm probably more on the theoretical side uh, and you're more on that empirical methodological side. So for me, the, the reason I sit where I do is I've always been fascinated by uh, sort of the big puzzles of international politics. And those puzzles are things like, you know, why do, why do wars occur and why, 
Um, why does peace keep breaking out? Why do we see cooperation sometimes and sometimes not others? Uh, in my own work, as I look at diplomacy, I'm interested in why leaders do this thing that doesn't seem to be all that smart to a lot of people uh, and actually can just be kind of you know dangerous or, or silly even. Um, and so I start with these these big questions and these big puzzles, and I try to wrap my head around um, what it is that might explain that. So you know what it is that that might be the the sort of variable or the concept or the way of understanding or looking at the world that helps us to make sense of of what's going on. Um, and oftentimes, I'll leave it there. I'll say, okay, the 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 work is sort of at that conceptual level. Like the work is is sort of debating with people who think that they have a, an image of their head of how the international system works. Um, and I have a vision in my head of how the international system works. And we, we kind of, we fight, we argue, we disagree, we talk it out at that level. And we never, we never get to testing. It's a purely theoretical exercise. So for example, I might say to you, you know, what is, what's, what are the important actors in the international system? And you might say, well, I, I think the most important actors are uh, corporations, or I think the most important actors are states, or I think the most important actors are international organizations, whatever, individuals. And we can talk about that and we can fight about that and we can argue about that purely at this theoretical level because we can kind of go back and forth and explain our reasoning and, and why we think um, why we think we're right and or you're right and I'm right or I'm wrong and you're wrong, whatever. We can go back and forth on that at a theoretical level. So so to me, that's really kind of where the, the meat of international politics is. It's, it's sort of these interesting big questions um, that are largely often theoretical in nature. And that's kind of where I like to hang out. That's where that's what I like to do. I like to think in that in that sort of and sort of realm. And let me just say one last little piece before we move on. You might be saying, you know, Professor Holmes, what is the danger of just being on the empirical side and just doing the sort of methodological side, right? No one is saying that. No, no one's thinking, <laughs> what is the danger? <laughs> wow, that does sound dangerous. <laughs> danger might be a strong word. <laughs> Sorry, you were you were saying. Yeah, Go ahead. I was going to say. So, you might ask yourself, what is the problem with being on the other side of the spectrum? Like, why why not be you know sort of a, a strict empirical person? Um, and to me, the, the 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 issue is that the method should come after the problem or the or the puzzle, right? And I think that that what often happens is or the way social science should work is we ask a question, we we have this sort of puzzle in our head, and then we say to ourselves, okay. Here's what I think explains that. Now, what is the appropriate method for, for going out and seeing if I'm, if I'm right or wrong? Too often, in my view, we have a situation where, where people start with the method and they start with it because they learned it or they have data that it, it, it works with, right? They start with something that they can do and they say, aha, here's what I'm going to, I'm going to use this data that I found, or I'm going to use this method that I learned about and I'm going to go study the world. But if it's not informed by a puzzle or a question or, or a theory, I think that the danger is that you do what, what uh, Walt and Mearsheimer talk about is, is simplistic hypothesis testing, which is you, you can find patterns in the data, but you really don't know if those patterns, those correlations are, are at all relevant because you don't have a theory driving your, your analysis. So I think that, that is on the far end of the spectrum. That's what I worry about. Uh, the folks who don't spend a lot of time sort of spending, thinking about theory and developing theoretically derived hypotheses and so on. And if they, if you lead with method, I think you can run into a trap of, of potentially finding things that actually aren't, aren't there or arguably uh, are not actually all that interesting because they're not theoretically informed. Wow. So I think you 
accused me there of not liking to think big thoughts, mm-hmm. of not being interested in like major puzzles in international relations. That's that's kind of what I got out of that. I think I agree with your straw man empirical researcher issue, which is like, yes, our uh, our empirical work, our looking um, at the world should be informed by theory and that should guide the methods that we use. I, I, I completely agree with that. I guess I would say for me, sitting in a room and thinking big thoughts, looking at the puzzles of international relations and theorizing about what's really going on, it's kind of self-indulgent, you know? It's like, uh, like yeah, sure, that's fun, but I have a lot of ideas that are not borne out by reality, my friend. And um, I think <laughs> if we want our theories to reflect the world, it's kind of incumbent upon us to say, well, is this something we can test at, at the very least? And maybe even make that make an attempt to test that theory. Um, so ideally, we're coming up with theories that are testable in the world that we can subject to some scrutiny using information, using things we know about the world as it is. And, you know, that could be some case studies that could be using data. But if we're just theorizing for the sake of theorizing, I find that personally less satisfying than subjecting the theories that I'm coming up with to some kind of empirical scrutiny. Um, Now, I have no quarrel with those who would like to do just the theoretical side. We need people to come up with good ideas, right? There's a a shortage of good ideas. And so anyone who's willing to come up with good ideas, um, I, uh, I applaud that. It's just for me personally, I get some satisfaction from seeing that my ideas are right. And so if I'm just kind of thinking on my own in a room without examining the world critically to see whether my theory is reflected in the world, then I find that that less uh, um, satisfying as, as something to spend my day doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a reasonable approach. I mean, one one of the dividing lines in the discipline historically has been, and, and one way to sort of characterize this conversation, is that the, the, the folks who do international relations scholarship can broadly be kind of divided into two groups, right? So there's, the, there's a group that, that Professor Kaplow just talked about, including himself, which is sort of this positivist um, way of thinking about international relations and the, how we study it. And, and the word that you use, I think, is very indicative here. You said test, right? Test uh, theory with available data, just like you would test chemicals in a, in a chemistry lab or physics or biology or whatever. Basically, um, international relations is a social science, and we take the science part seriously. And to the extent that we can, we try to, we try to use the scientific method to, to understand what's going on in the world. There's another camp um, that sort of identifies as non-positivists, and this is a, a broad group of people who, who sort of are skeptical about, about this, right? So they're skeptical for, for a couple of different reasons. First of all, you, know, you have this, this basic issue of, of being doubtful that we can ever approach social relations um, like politics in a, scientific, in a scientific way. Now, there's lots of reasons for that. I mean, you know, we don't, humans don't necessarily behave like um, uh, billiard balls on a on a table. They don't behave like chemicals in a lab. They have things like consciousness and free will. So a lot of people would argue that this complicates matters. Now you could respond and say, well, you know, there's no, I can model consciousness and free will uh, if I have a big enough data set and test that scientifically as well. Maybe that's true. But I think there's a lot of suspicion of, of the idea that we can sort of reduce human behavior um, either individually or collective in the, in the case of what we're typically trying to explain. Uh, in a scientific way, like we can't we can't really talk about human beings as social creatures in the same way we talk about chemicals or cells or something like that. But there's, I think, also a broader 
like more sort of philosophical question here that's not really sort of about testing but it's it, but it's about the nature of the researcher to the to the question so one of the things that non positivists point out is that it's very difficult to scientifically look at the 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 world that you're explaining that objective world when you're a, a part of it you know so one of the one of the virtues of having um you know somebody in a lab doing chemistry experiments is that the the researcher the human being is very distinct from a like an anatomical perspective from that with which she is or she is studying right it's like i pour chemicals into this i light it on fire whatever i'm not part of that but a researcher in, in international relations is part of the international system and what's more the research that one does might even affect that system right so jeff you go out and write this this important book about the npt people are going to read that book policymakers might get wind of your ideas uh and maybe change their behaviors as a consequence the researcher in the lab is not changing the way that the chemicals behave. They're on their own. So, so what, what sort of non-positivists often point out is that there's a very difficult relationship between the person doing research and the object of study, which is the international system, because we're embedded within that, that very system. And this creates a little bit of an awkward situation, but the basic idea is that you can no longer be objective in what you do. It's much more of a subjective uh, kind of experience. So I think that that's... That's another way of kind of thinking about this. The last thing I want to say, though, the, the word that I think that, that really caught my attention in your last uh, uh, series of comments, self-indulgent. I actually have the same critique about the, the empirical folks who are often so fixated on the latest R package or the, the latest method that they picked up, uh, some fancy thing that the, the, the math people have shown us. And they, they get really excited about the, the, the things that they're doing in the data. Um, that's a self-indulgent sort of endeavor of its own, right? Because I think a lot of times what happens is for all of your, your criticisms of the theory people, we see the same exact behaviors. Uh, it's just in, in a different venue. It's, it's in a statistical package as opposed to, you know, sort of words on a, on a paper or whatever. So I, I, I think that we're actually talking about the same thing. It's just a matter of sort of where do you get your kicks? You get your kicks talking about, you know, so sort of these high theory questions or you get your kicks uh, learning about a new fancy method that, um, uh, somebody used in a business school or something and you picked up. And so that, that is self-indulgence all the same. It's just a matter of, of where we're getting the, the, the enjoyment out of it. Yeah, I, I appreciate you kind of bringing the positivist versus uh, um, kind of non-positivist research approaches into this. I sometimes hear this critique from, from critical theorists and, and others that the researcher is part of the story, that we're a part of the, the international system, as you just said. And um, I mean, I, I, I can see in theory how that's true, <laughs> but in practice, it's pretty clear that nobody's reading my book and, and changing <laughs> policies, right? So like the, the, the idea that we have as academic researchers, no offense, Marcus, influence over the policy process that would somehow compromise our research um, for most of us. There are, there are people who, who that is true of, right, who are really affecting the debate and maybe who are going back and forth from, from policy into academia. And so... Um, have kind of a different relationship with the academic work. I, I think that kind of insulates me from that that critique um, in the sense that like the, the the chances of this work having a kind of policy impact are, is, is fairly small and on the margins and not something that I'm um, particularly concerned about. No, I think that's fair. And I think for any given researcher, uh, unless you're somebody super famous, uh, it's unlikely that you're, you alone are going to have an effect. But I think the, the two ways I, I would think about this is that it's it's not so much sort of the, the question isn't really, well, Jeff Kaplow as being part of the international system 
as a researcher have a tremendous effect on that system? I agree with you. The answer is probably no. And for most of us, myself included, it's no. Most of us doing the work, it's, it's, it's no. If the question um, is ultimately about individuals and the policy world, right? But when you aggregate academics together, you can make the argument that in, a, in the aggregate sense, we do have some effect, right? Because you're sort of pooling all, every, all the debates that we have and everything that we argue and all the papers that we write. It, 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 something emerges from that. And one thing that emerges from that might be an idea that floats into the head of a policymaker and then the policymaker makes a decision based on, based on that idea. So I think in a very kind of diffuse sense, the critique is, is, is actually right. That we do by being in the world that we in which we study, we do have effects on that world, even if not individually, and it's more of a collective uh, enterprise. But I think the critique is actually more powerful when it's when it's pitched a, a diff, slightly different way, which is to say, it's just very difficult to be objective and look at the world through a value neutral frame when you're a part of it, right? So this is again going back to the the chemist. The chemist doesn't care you know, about um, the, the molecules that he or she is studying, right? They exist independently. They're out there. They're objectively just things out in the world. And you can, you can look at that very objectively. But for, for us, being in a, in a world where presumably we don't want war, uh, we want to see countries, you know, get along with one another, whether there are strong normative incentives to see things in a particular way or very weak ones, I think when you're dealing with social relations and politics, it's very difficult for the researcher to completely dis, dis, uh, detach themselves from the, the object that they're studying, right? And this is why sometimes um, people in the non-positivist camp sort of make the distinction between an object and a subject, right? You know, chemicals are objects. What we're dealing with in our, in our work are, are subjects. These are, these are human beings. Um, they have goals and motives. We as humans have goals and motives because we're subjects too. And so it's just, it's very difficult to completely detach all of your, your values and biases and things of that nature uh, when looking out in the world and, and, and studying. And so that critique, I actually think is a little bit um, more powerful. The last thing I'll say too, we've been talking about this in terms of, of the international system as a, as a policy endeavor. One of the things that gets pointed out by the non-positivists is it's not so much the, the policy concern, right? So it might be the case that no one reads political science, and, and so that doesn't really matter from a policy perspective because we're totally irrelevant to anything. And there's a lot to support that argument. But if you think about the way something like international relations as a discipline develops, right, the idea of like what we're doing in our work, like what, what Professor Kaplan does, what Professor Holmes, um, what, we, what we do is very much sort of based on an evolution uh, within the discipline of how people see the world, right? So while Kenneth Waltz um, has probably little effect on the policy world, he had a tremendous effect in the way that international relations as a discipline understands like what the system is or understands what we're doing here. What are we trying to do? You could imagine a situation where the, the idea of international relations develops completely differently. You know, if Waltz doesn't come around or if somebody in Europe develops a, a, a theory of, of international relations, gets it published and people think it's a good idea, or somebody in Japan or China does the same thing, it could develop very differently, right? So our very understanding of the thing that we're studying is in some sense a social product because what we're doing is we're, we're in the world of Waltz. We're in the world of what the people that have come before us, and that's a social enterprise. And so, again, it's not like there's this world out there that's objective that we study. Our understanding of that world is very much conditioned by, by the people that, that came before us and that we're, we're ultimately responding to. 
Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And, and it's something I think about in terms of what do we even define as within the field? The field itself is a, is a social construct, right? Like, so when I'm teaching my international security class, like I usually spend a day at the beginning asking, is this even what international security is? So I have a syllabus that I came to, right, um, which is really a product of my education. Ideas about what international security is foisted upon me by uh, people who largely look like me, right, who were educated in whatever way they were educated from. This is like the, the received wisdom of the elders that's being passed down now. And we shouldn't let that go uncritically, right? It's, I think, worth thinking about, is this what we ought to be studying when we say we're studying international affairs or international relations or international security, in my case? And the way I've put together a class on international security really emphasizes, like, you know, war, bombs, guns, right? And it's a particular kind of an international security class, but who's to say that we shouldn't be spending most of our time talking about climate change, human rights, refugees, and some more kind of human security focused version of this story that focuses more on like the people who are being subjected to all this violence in the world, as opposed to the, the one white man in a room making a decision about whether there should be a war or not. Um, so I, I think that's a really important point that, you know, there's no objective, what is international relations that we can fall back on? International relations is kind of what we in the discipline have said it is, and that may or may not be the right answer. Right, exactly. That's a, that's a very nice point. And, you know, I think this gets back to what we were talking about earlier, where so now if we adopt the idea that the international relations and what we do as social scientists is is somewhat a product of what we've read and who trained us and, and what the discipline says is important, then you can kind of see the problem with this idea of saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go out and test something that I think is, is true. Because what, what, what that sentence implies is that I have a vision of, of the international system. I have a, of an understanding of it and I want to go, you know, see if my understanding is right. But if your understanding of it is, um, you know, only it's, it's a product of a social process and that social process was, was only looking at, you know, like this part for the, those listening at home, I'm holding up my hands showing like 30% of something that might be, you know, a hundred percent. And that's what you've learned. Then the, then the question becomes sort of, well, what, why are you asking that question? Why are you trying to test that thing? Why shouldn't you spend your time trying to learn the other 70% that you'd ever, never occurred to you uh, to even think about. Right. And so I, I actually, oftentimes in my government 204, the introduction to international politics class, I, I find that students are often taken aback when they learn what international relations is, because we, we take it for granted. I, I think about international relations and I think about, you know, states interacting in a, in a system. Um, and oftentimes students, when they walk into that class, that's not what they think international relations is. They might think international relations is um, how it came to be that, you know, a country in Africa is poor and the United States is not. That's international relations. Or, you know, why it is that uh, the ozone layer is depleted or whatever. That's also international relations, right? So there's there's all of these questions um, are, are really sort of hinting at the idea that international relations is to a certain extent what the international relations discipline says that it is, you know, what gets published and what's, what gets taught and everything like that. And that might be congruent with the world. And that might be congruent, like with how policymakers see the world and what we all think is important. Or it might not be, you know, it might be the case that we're actually studying something and, and sort of cultivating this um, idea of international relations that maybe is misleading at best, 
you know, maybe it's it's detached from what we should be doing. And maybe somebody will come along and, and suggest at some point, no, this is this is not right. We need to be we need to be doing something else. But this, my friend, Professor Kaplow, is a theoretical question. And so to me, progress in international politics comes from people coming in and saying, the way that you guys are thinking about international relations is all wrong. And the reason that you're thinking about international relations is not because it's wrong, is not because this data that I found in the in the regression shows that it's wrong. It's because I thought about this and I know why you're thinking that this is the right way of doing it, but I think you're wrong and I can explain to you why you're wrong. And here's why you should be thinking about it very differently. I will give you one example that I think is relevant. Pre-Cold War and post-Cold War international relations, in my view, looks very different. And the reason is, is we had all of these theories that we thought explained what was going on in the international system, why the Cold War was happening, why it was relatively peaceful if you take out Vietnam, you take out Korea and all that, but why the United States and Soviet Union were not fighting uh, and going to nuclear war with one another. We thought we had great ideas for, that explained that. And then the Cold War ended, and it took kind of people by surprise, and they said, huh, that's funny, because our theories didn't predict that it was going to end. If you have a theory that's based on a bipolar distribution of power and nuclear weapons are the things that determine your, your, the polarity, the Soviet Union and the United States both had large numbers of, of nuclear weapons. And guess what? The United States and Russia today still have large numbers of nuclear weapons. The Cold War should be going on today in 2021 if that's what explains it. So obviously something has to give here. Something is not right. So new thinkers came in and they asked basic questions. Like, what, are, what is the nature of the international system? What explains, you know, these sort of broad outcomes? Not at the level of granular data, at the big, big picture level. And it turns out that one of the people that came along, this guy, Alex Wentz, said, you know, you guys are thinking about uh, states and you're thinking about rationality and you're thinking about uh, state interests and you're thinking about these things in very material terms. But there's something else going on. Ideas are important, too. And the reason the Cold War ended wasn't because of material, because the nuclear weapons are still there. It's the social level on top of the material that helps us to make sense of what the material is. And so that was a new way of thinking about the Cold War. Now, maybe you think that he's right. Maybe you think that he's wrong. But it was a theoretical intervention. It's what moved the field forward. It was somebody coming and saying, the way that you guys are thinking about international relations is just completely wrong. And I can help us here. Did it answer all the questions? Of course not. Is, is there now room for people to go out and do empirical testing? I think that there probably is room for that. But to me, the interesting part is in the theoretical development. So for our students that are listening in Government 204, we're going to talk about when, and we're going to talk about why I think it was, a, it was a big intervention in the discussion. But it's not even just about when. It's the big names of international politics that change our way of thinking. Whether it's, whether it's Cohane or whether it's Waltz or whether it's Mearsheimer, these are people, scholars, who typically are not doing the sophisticated data analysis. You know, Bob Cohane is not known for his method, methodological rigor. John Mearsheimer hasn't seen a, a, a statistical package in his life. It doesn't matter because the, the point is, is that they have the ability to look at the international system and understand the received wisdom and say, Here's why I think that's wrong. Here's what I think is going on instead. Now, it doesn't mean that you can just do that in, in two, two pages and, and say I'm done. No, 
you got to do something to back up what you're saying. And maybe that that is going to be some empirical thing. Maybe that's a case study. Maybe that's a, a data set. Maybe, who knows what it is? But the point is that the interesting part isn't in the method. The interesting part is in the theory. I don't disagree with you. I, I guess I, I just want to draw a distinction, though, between theory that is testable and an idea. And, and I think one place we sometimes get into trouble in, in IR is when we talk about these grand paradigms, constructivism, liberalism, realism, as theories. Because really what they are is an idea about what matters in international relations. So for Wendt, ideas matter. Um, for Cohen, in a, liberalist, in a liberal theory, institutions matter, maybe democracy. For uh, realists like Mearsheimer or Waltz, power is what matters in international relations. And so there is undoubtedly important contributions by these uh, scholars to our understanding of how the world works. The problem for me is when you start calling them theories, which in kind of a positivist approach, right, where we think about the scientific method and hypothesis testing, you know, there is no kind of realist theory of, of anything in particular, right? A re a realism is more a set of as common assumptions among a group of scholars than it is any particular theory with um, a testable hypothesis that we can observe. And so what I want to be doing when I'm studying international relations is coming up with theories of how the world works that then I can look at the world and say, okay, was that right? And that's very difficult to do with the isms, with these paradigms that we're still somehow subjecting students to in introductory international relations courses, when the real contribution of these scholars, certainly a significant contribution, is in this kind of singular idea or this common set of assumptions. But does that really help us understand like any specific situation in the world? I actually think, Jeff, we're not that far off. I think part of the issue uh, is is, and this is going to sound like a cop-out, but I do think it's partially semantics. So when I, when I talk about theory in the, in the version that I just said, so like the Waltz, the Cohanes, the Wentz of the world, right? To me, what these folks are giving us, it is, it is a theory, but it's sort of a grand theory, right? And, and the way that Waltz talks about this is beautiful. So in his 1979 book, there's this line where he, he sets out what he's going to do. He says, I'm going to give you a theory of internet. The name of the book is Theory of International Politics. I'm going to give you a theory of international politics. So what, what's a theory? A theory is, on page eight, a theory is a picture mentally formed of a bounded realm or domain of activity. A picture mentally formed. So what I take that to mean is that, number one, pictures can be many different things. But I, I think of pictures as sort of like a map, right? What, it, what is, what is the, 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 the map that Waltz is giving us to understand the international system. And that map, as you as you noted, focuses very much on power and on capabilities. It's sort of like a, a, a billiard ball map. But on that map, you'll notice there's not a whole lot of room for individuals. There's not a whole lot of attention on that map to the UN or international organizations or international institutions, because it's a map of a very specific bounded realm or domain of activity. That is a theory, though, in the grandest sense, because it's making a claim about what is important. Waltz is effectively saying, my theory is that in international politics, power is important, and the balance of power is super important, right? That's his theory. 
Now, it might be a very vague theory. It might be a very sort of broad theory. And is it, is it completely testable at that level? No, it's probably not. But I think what Waltz would say, and the way I look at these grand theories, is that that's not really the point. The point is to get that picture mentally formed. And then from that grand theory is when people like you and me come along and we say, all right, now I want to start actually thinking about this in more material terms, like in more sort of, of if you, the word you use is testing terms, or if I want to understand something, right? I can develop a, a theory that's a little bit more specific. And I, from that theory, I can develop a hypothesis and then I can go out and, and test it. So just as a, as a quick example, you know, if, if Wendt goes out and says that he thinks that uh, norms are important and ideas are important, um, then you can, ha- you can create a testable hypothesis that, let's say, states are, are abiding by uh, or are having particular behaviors because of norms. And you might say, I have, a, I have a hypothesis that the reason we haven't used a nuclear weapon since we did so in, 19, in 1945 is because of a normative taboo against the use of nuclear weapons. So, so you have the grand theory went saying, I have a picture mentally formed in my head about what matters in international relations. Ideas matter. The theory is norms constrain state behavior. The specific theory or hypothesis is that Maybe one of the reasons we haven't used nuclear weapons is because of, an, of, of a taboo. And that right there is testable. Wentz's idea is not testable. He can't, you can't test whether ideas matter at that level. But if you start drilling down to, to sort of lower levels of theory building and then hypothesis generation, I think you can start to test these things. So I think we mostly agree. I think if we, we set out sort of like what, how we understand theory more generally and the role of testing and hypotheses. I think we basically agree. I'm just more willing to, to call some of the ism stuff grand theory, and you see it more as ideas kind of about what's important in international politics. But I don't think we're that far off. Well, and I see it as kind of fundamentally a waste of our time. What I'm more interested in is this, what, what we call in the business mid-level theory. That is not this grand theory, right? Like, yeah, ideas are important in the world. Thank you, Alex Went, right? But it's, it's more like, okay, here's a puzzle in the world that we see. Here's something I don't understand that's happening in the world. And how can we explain that? And if that, if that means bringing in ideas and power and, and uh, institutions, then great, right? But that doesn't mean that what Went is putting forth what um, what Mearsheimer is putting forth represents like a specific theory that I can do something with that matters in how the world works as far as far as I'm concerned. Right. But I, I guess the only thing I would say is you, you wouldn't you wouldn't be testing, though, the whether the ideas are what matter until when comes along and makes this argument and sort of re rejiggers our way of thinking about the international system, because what happens is before before went and constructivism is on the scene. You basically have all the theories that get generated, all the hypothesis testing is all about the other stuff. It's all about, you know, it was institutions for a long time. And before that was all about power and this and that. So the, the, the ism or the sort of grand idea, to use your term, is what, what generates the, pu- the puzzles for a lot of, of researchers. Because they say, oh, you know, maybe this is actually explained by ideas and not power. Or maybe it's explained by ideas and not institutions. Or maybe it's a combination of the three or whatever. But it's it's until you get that new idea coming on the scene, you're not going to see it reflected in the in the testing and the and the hypothesis generation. And so that's that's why to me these these isms are so important is because they they reorient our focus. The fancy word for this uh, in international politics and the social sciences is ontology. They basically say here is what we think is important in international politics. Here's the ontology of the international system. 
And until you make that conceptual shift in your head, you're not going to be using what they think is important in, in your testing because you're limited. And so somebody like Went or constructivism coming on the scene says, we're opening up a whole new landscape for theorizing and hypothesis generation and indeed testing, and we're giving it to you. And to me, that's the value of, of the isms. Let me, just, let me just say one last thing, Jeff. The other nice thing about the isms, they form a way of, of communication. If you come into to a conference and you say, I'm a constructivist, or I'm a Marxist, or I'm a feminist, I immediately know exactly what you're talking about. I know how you see the world. Oh, no, 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 no. So this is one of the main problems with the isms is that it puts you in a box. There are a set of professional incentives that are associated with being part of a tribe, being a realist, being a constructivist, being a liberal, that affects our ability to come up with theories that actually explain the world. Like, let's say you are a well-known constructivist, Marcus. That would be accurate. <laughs> well-known to our listeners, definitely. Right, right. right? People have heard of me. Let's say you're a well-known constructivist. What are your professional incentives? How do you get ahead being a constructivist scholar? Well, one of the things you want to do is be the best constructivist you can be. You double down on this idea that ideas are the important thing in international relations, and you find places where you can apply your theory of ideas in the most productive way. So you look around, you've got your hammer, and you're looking around for your, the nails to hammer. And, and this is something that happens in, in academia where, you know, it, it isn't good for you professionally to say, well, I'm not actually a really committed constructivist. I'm kind of like a half-time constructivist. And some of the time on the side, I think power matters. Because how do, you, how do you become the top constructivist in the field? You really are a constructivist. You only think about ideas. You hate institutions. You hate power. It's all ideas for you. And a similar thing is happening for the realists, right? Who can be the best realist? Who can only think about power all the time? And what happens is you lose this cross-pollination of ideas because very often it's not just power that's doing the work. It's not just ideas that's doing the work. It's some combination of these things, ideally what we have scholars doing is looking at things that are actually hard to explain in the world and starting from scratch and saying, okay, what is the best way to explain this phenomena that I see in the world, right? In the same way you say that, you know, the theory should drive methods. The theory should be appropriate to that thing that you're studying. It shouldn't be like, well, I'm a realist, so it must be power. That must be the thing that matters. I, I really appreciate your 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 claims about human nature and our tribal uh, the way that civilization like sets itself. I, I should say I should credit these ideas, right? So so there is a large debate in the um, in the international relations literature about how important the isms, the paradigms are to our field, how much emphasis we should put on them, where the action is in new theorizing and new empirical work. And um, this critique of the isms made by a number of scholars um, that, you know, this is their professional incentives surrounding the paradigms has distorted the work of the field over time. If we want to talk about professional incentives, I think that's fine. But I, I don't to me, that's not really an interesting part of the argument. Well, you just we made this argument that we're, we're part of the, sor the story, right? That like like, you, you yeah, know, yeah, we're yeah, part no, of no, the no, international no. system. You 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 turn the lens 
onto acad- academics. So you can't now back out and say, well, our professional incentives aren't relevant to the discussion. No, I, but I think we could change our, our professional incentives. Like, I don't, I don't think that the isms cause the professional incentives to be one way. Like, I think that we have professional incentives that are caused by all kinds of different things. So basically what you're doing is you're taking the isms and blaming professional incentives for the, because of the, the, the isms. I, I think the professional incentives are going to be messed up no matter what. But the, other, the more important thing, Jeffrey, is that the point that, that you make about finding things to, to – if you have a hammer, you find nails. I mean this is the exact critique that, that people use against the methodological people, right? So it's ironic because you're making the critique against, against you know, the isms. I mean that's exactly what these empiricists do, right? They go, they go oh, I got this fancy method, you know, this, new, this new regression thing that's great. It's you know, machine learning, et cetera. Uh, where's my data? I got to go find something that I can explain, right? You know, so so I think what your point is, is that it, there, you could be a bad social scientist, regardless of whether you're like fond of the isms or not. And you're not going to get any disagreement from me. Like, I, I totally agree. But I, I just think that, you know, uh, the, the isms by themselves, if we take human nature out of it for a second and we, and we grant that even if you're a non-ism person, you can do bad social science. They do provide nice frameworks, right? The, the ironic part for me is that a lot of the people who don't like the so-called isms, and what, what we mean here, dear listeners, are things like realism, liberalism, constructivism, Marxism, etc. Many of those folks actually belong to their own ism. They just don't know it. And it's called rationalism. And these folks sick, like to think to themselves that we don't have an ism. We don't have an ism. And they have everything. Brian Rathman wrote this beautiful book about, all about this topic, which is that rationalism, these people who think that, that state behavior and individual behavior uh, proceeds through rational uh, decision-making processes, which is which is not true, but a lot of people believe this, that they actually have all the things of the isms too. So they complain about the isms, and yet they're the ones that are are reinforcing the very ism paradigmatic thing that they don't like, but they just don't they don't see themselves as being part of it. So why are you looking right at me when you when you make that <laughs> critique? I think if there's a paradigm, Jeffrey, that that you you belong to, it would be rationalism. Can we agree on that? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I just, I don't, I don't care. (laughs) Like, like I'm not, I'm not worried about the, these kind of grand theoretical debates. What I want to do is explain something. So like, like I want to see something's going on in the world that is, I'm having a hard time understanding. And then I want to theorize about what could be causing that. And then I want to see if I'm right. That that's, that's what I want to do all, all, all day, every day. And I, I want you to stop bothering me with like, what group am I in? What ism am, am I am I going along with? I want to explain the world, Marcus. Let me explain the world. Dear listener, if you're in my government 204, I have a whole lecture where I talk about Jeffrey Kaplow's work. And so we, we will get there eventually. But, <laughs> but I, wanna, I just want to make one point for, the, for now, sort of foreshadow what we're going to talk about. Jeff doesn't like the isms. He's made that very clear. He doesn't like realism, liberalism, constructivism if you if you were to talk to jeff though and you ask him anything about his work he's going to talk about uh the npt right he's going to talk about how he studies this institution that tries to limit the proliferation of nuclear weapons what's interesting about jeff's work though it's highly influenced indeed one may make the argument that it actually is in the liberal ism it's a liberal paradigm I would wager that Jeff Kaplow's book in theory does not get created if Bob Kilhane doesn't come around in 1985 and make the argument that institutions are important. And here's why. The NPT being an example of an institution. So what Jeff has done is he's taken all the received wisdom of this paradigm he so detests, liberalism, 
and used it for his own purposes, which is exactly what I just said is the point. That somebody comes along and they say these institutions matter, they share information, there's reputation, there's reciprocity, all, the, all this good stuff. And that changes the way that we think about international politics. We start taking institutions seriously. And then Jeff comes along 20 years later and says, ah, I got a theory, a testable theory about why we don't see nuclear uh, proliferation or we don't see che- states cheating very much in the NPT once they sign, right? And if you look at the theory, it's all based on what Cohane was telling us for the last 20, 30 years. So, so Jeff is taking the grand theory that I was talking about from that grand theory, developing his own theory. And I'm not saying that Jeff doesn't have his own theory. He does, but it's highly influenced by the work of Bob Cohen. And he's saying, I have a testable theory. I'm going to go out and test it. And I think Jeff finds that his theory is right based on what the evidence that he has available to him. But to me, this is exactly how it's supposed to work. The paradigmatic shift that happens with liberalism and Bob Cohen is a direct causal arrow to Jeffrey Kaplan in 2021 with a brilliant book on the NPT. For, for sure. So let me just say, in, in case Bob is listening to this, um, <laughs> absolutely, the work of Bob Cohen, the work of Kenneth, Kenneth Waltz, not any constructivist, but those two at least are, are um, important to my work, right? Like I am in, for sure building on those ideas. So I, I don't detest anything, right? But, but what I do worry about is the utility of thinking about things in terms of this paradigmatic debate today, 2021. Like, like I'm not saying that these ideas weren't, you know, really important to the formation of like whole pieces of how we study international relations, right? But that's a different question than what should we subject freshmen to when they take your class? My concern about the isms is more about what we should be spending our time and effort thinking about and doing today, 2021. Marcus, you and I, we both review a lot of papers for, for international relations journals. And every once in a while, we'll get a paper that begins with um, some issue in the world, right? And then it's like, here's what realists think about this issue. Here's what liberals think about this issue. Here's what constructivists, and if someone's overachieving, here's like what Marxists think about this issue. And to me, that is like entirely unhelpful. It's not getting to the underlying question of what is causing this phenomena we see in the world that we want to understand. It's just a crutch, right? It, and and I, I worry about spending time and effort forcing our undergraduates to understand these paradigms that really are no longer driving progress in the field. Their influence is undoubtedly important and has gotten us to where we are, right? But when you are, you know, taking chemistry classes, do you, you know, we, we take the received wisdom of the chemists that have gone before, but we're not necessarily reading a lot of work from the early 1900s, right? Um, we're, we're reading the modern takes on those um, initial efforts that got us to where we are today. Right. But if you take a philosophy class, you still read, you know, Hobbes and Plato and all these people. And, and, and Yeah, I don't take I don't take any philosophy classes. I think I don't think you actually make bad points. I mean, I don't think they're great points. <laughs> let me let me say a couple of things, especially to my students who might be listening to this. Let me let me before you get persuaded by Jeffrey's take here. Let me just explain a couple of things. The first is that we we talked a second ago um, about the importance of like, understanding the the international system and what what the discipline understands international relations as being. I do think it's important for students to have some understanding of how that um, evolved over time, right? So when we talk about what is international relations? And students are surprised to find out what it means is, you know, states interacting with one another, basically. 
well, why is that? Why is that our, our understanding of, of the discipline? And I think that's actually really hard to explain if you don't get into some of the debates that have happened in the field between these, these paradigms. So even outside of the question of whether these are useful for theory generation, and I think we, we can go back and forth on that you know, until we're blue in the face, we'll probably not resolve that. There is a, a, a second question of whether these are useful sort of orienting us towards the field of international relations and getting some appreciation for how it's evolved. And I think that on that level, it is important for students to have some sense of, of why it is that we study the things that we do. Because a very legitimate criticism, as we talked about earlier, is why, why spend our time studying X when we could be thinking about international relations from an a, a ABC uh, perspective? And that's a tough question to answer if you don't have the historical sort of understanding of how, how the discipline um, develops. So that's, that's one thing I would say there. The other thing that I think is kind of interesting, though, is when you said that you review articles and people talk about this is what liberals say about this and what constructivists say about this. I, I actually don't get bothered by that as much because I do think it's important for people to state that other ways of understanding the problem will likely look very different, right? So I'm, and, and I'm always kind of curious what, how a Marxist, let's say, might, might approach a particular topic or, I, or I'm interested in how a feminist might approach a particular topic. And I think it's often useful to, to lay that out precisely because if I don't think in that in those terms, I don't, if I don't think like a Marxist, it might not be obvious to me that they have something actually to, to say about this. And that, that what they say is actually, you know, potentially quite interesting. So unless we lay out for our students or in your case, you know, for, for readers of an article, what other people and what we mean here are sort of other ways of thinking about the problem actually think. It becomes very easy to get siloed into this, this one sort of way of thinking about a problem and say, okay, here's, here's the way I think about this. Here's the way that I understand this. And I, I would agree with you from a sort of scientific method perspective, that's absolutely fine. Here's my theory, and I'm going to test it. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. If I'm right, I'm right. But from a sort of broader understanding of, of what's going on, I think it is very useful to point out that other people might be looking at this uh, considerably differently. And, and crucially, though, Here's why I'm taking the approach that I am taking. So instead of saying, you know, Marxists have a view on this, and that might be interesting, but I'm not going to look at that. Explain why. Explain why you think those, those folks are wrong. So to me, that's, that's all part of the process is explaining why your view and understanding of what's going on is, is indeed either empirically more correct or theoretically more relevant than how other people are, are looking at the problem. So that's, those, are the, those are the two things I would say there. Again, for our listeners, this is a debate that's been going on in the field of international relations since I, I have been involved in it. It probably will never be resolved. Uh, and it comes up all the time. No, but progress is being made, right? So, so um, the, this kind of paradigmatic approach to international relations has, I think, been declining in importance by various metrics, including you know, the number of articles that start off with this, you know, <laughs> ridiculous laundry list of, oh, if realists would approach this by emphasizing power. Thank you. Thank you, author, for telling me that. Um, I, we, we see much less of that than we used to, right? And, it, you know, there was a time, the kind of height of these paradigm wars, that every article was in a camp, right? And it said, I'm going to employ a realist analysis to think about this thing, whatever that means, right? Nobody knows what that means. I'm going to employ a constructivist analysis. And we've moved past that, I think, which is good, good news, where articles now are no longer kind of beholden to this idea that they, they must state their paradigmatic tribe before they can go forth and actually do some interesting work. Um, so I think that that's progress. I'm not trying to say we should 
ignore the power of these new ideas in international relations, right? So when people have new ideas, that's great. Um, and we, 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 want, we want new ideas. We want to use them. We want to incorporate them into our understanding of how the world works. It's just the, the kind of side effects of having a group of people formed around a particular set of assumptions in the world that, that worry me and I think uh, prevent us from focusing on the real work here, which is explaining what's going on. I would completely agree. And I will say for our listeners, there was a time um, in, the, in the old days for, for Jeffrey and I where you would you would be sort of a card carrying member of a, of a camp. So Jeff is not wrong about that. So you'd be like, I, I'm the construct. I got my constructivist card. It's stamped. You know, I'm good to go. I was I was vetted. I'm part of this this group that clearly doesn't doesn't happen anymore. One of the interesting things, though, is that I think that the people who identify by ism has certainly gone down. But. One of the interesting things in the latest trip data that I saw anyways, because it could be outdated by now, but constructivism was like way up. So like, you know, it's 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 one of these things where like everybody's now a constructivist. It's finally your moment. You, you finally my moment. You waited like, we're, we're out, right? Yes, we won the war. <laughs> and it's just sort of it's it's interesting to me that, that that's that's the case. But I, I can't end this conversation without getting your thoughts on one topic, Jeff. Do you not see all the same things that you 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 sort of lamented about the isms? Do you not agree that many of these same exact problems exist on the for the the really sort of um, heavy empirical folks? And what we see is this sort of like um, uh, group of people who self-identify around a particular method or a particular experiments, let's say, or big data or whatever whatever it is, or some or even fancier sort of thing that's difficult to understand because there's a lot of math involved. But like there's they they get attracted to a thing and it, it comes sort of all about that thing. And then that's the hammer that they then use to see every you know nail in the world, and they and they hit it. So I I, I just want to caution our listeners it's to say that this is. And when I talked about human nature, I wasn't I wasn't being facetious. I think people fall into this sort of trap all the time, and I don't. I think it's unfair to blame the isms because I think we see the same exact thing happening when it comes to methods. Um, and to me, and we might disagree about this. That's actually the far bigger problem. I don't worry about st- people thinking highfalutin thoughts and comparing, you know, Marxist thought to feminist thought to liberal thought or whatever. That doesn't bother me. I am somewhat bothered by the people who sort of adopt a, a methodological stance and see everything through what that method can help us uh, to explain, and then crucially discount the methodological approaches of other people. That that bothers me. So I think if you're gonna if you're gonna be somebody who's very big on experiments, let's say, or, or very big on you know, big data, statistical analysis, or whatever, machine learning, that, that's fine. But one, I would say you can't see the, 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 that as a solution to every single problem in the world or way to understand every single problem, and crucially have to be open to the idea that other methods um, add value as well, and that the only way to understand something is, is to run an experiment or something like that. Do you, do you agree with that, or do you disagree with that, Jeff? No, I agree with that. I think even the most hardcore methodologists would agree with the idea that the method should follow from the problem rather than the other way around, right? It's, it's, it w- it's not socially acceptable to say in polite company that um, this particular method is the right answer for every question. Um, that's that's uh, an idea that's frowned upon. So I think- But in practice- But in practice, right? If, like, if I happen to know my one thing really well, like I do my machine learning, I love it. To me, like, I really want to use my machine learning method on everything I can find, <laughs> right? right? Exactly. Um, right. And, and so, you know, that's human nature. You're right about that. But you, we should at least recognize that not every methodological tool is appropriate for every problem that we're trying to solve in the world. And, you know, some of this comes back to causal inference and experiments in international relations, which is, 
you know, a, a little bit of a controversial issue, I guess, um, in the sense that, you know, people who do experiments and can get actual causal inference out of their studies are like rightly happy about this. Right. They, they think that this is great, that like for once um, we can have a good causal identification. That just means we can figure out that there is a causal link between something that you're doing to your control to your treatment group in your experiment and some outcome in the world. And so they're excited, right? Because the rest of us are, are out there like doing these observational studies where we may or may not be identifying any more than a correlation in the world. So experimentalists are happy about that. And sometimes they say so. Uh, that, that their that their way is 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 great, and it's true. I think their way is great. The big problem is that it's hard to run experiments on certain things in international relations, and those things tend to be like the kind of big picture questions that some of us are interested in, right? So my uh, experimental proposals of like giving nuclear weapons to a bunch of countries and at the treatment group and not giving it to the countries in the control group, and then seeing who gets involved in war. This is a great research design. This cannot get institutional review board approval, right? There are ethical and practical problems with this approach. I mean, I only have a few nuclear weapons of my own. I'm not willing to give them out. It's expensive and ethically may be questionable. And so I can't run that experiment. So if I want to study the role of nuclear weapons in, in leading to conflict or not, you know, I got to kind of look at the data we have from the world, the experiment that we're running here in this, in this crazy world of ours, and um, try to discern some, some order from that. Um, and so I'm kind of left not having access to experimental methods to look at these questions. Now, some experimentalists would say, well, I'm, I need to do more work to try to come up with a research design that can get at these questions experimentally. And I, I agree with that. Like, it, like if we had a, a way to capture these questions with experimental methods that can better capture causal chains of, of things in the world, I would be all for that. I want to be doing that. Um, and so maybe it's just a failure of my own creativity and coming up with better research designs that can get at that stuff. But in the meantime, um, I'm doing the work that I can do to answer the questions I want to answer. I'm not willing to give up the questions that I think are important about the world in order to use a particular method to answer those questions. Very nice. I couldn't have said it better myself, Jeffrey. I think that's, that's exactly right. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Marcus, for joining me today. I appreciate it. I, I got to say, Jeffrey, this is probably the most fun I've had uh, in a long time. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. Ah, you got you got me. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck with that. I'm just gonna tune out for a little bit. You do your thing. No. <laughs> I actually li really like it, Professor Caplow, when you have a, a like a two to three minute sort of monologue, and it's very it's very captivating. That was that counts. It, well, it gives you a chance to come up with something to say. I, I right. know what's I was, happening. I was making over there. notes during the during the whole yeah. whole time.